This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Mandrake Speaking of tiny people, yeah, that's what we were doing. Remember last week we talked about the homunculus? A tiny person intentionally created through alchemical processes by combining human biological fluid with some blood and allowing it to grow inside an animal? Yeah, hard to forget, right? That was pretty gross. Well, we're sorry. We're not done yet. Because there's another magical tiny person whose roots reach back through the Middle Ages and into ancient Greece, Rome, and the Middle East. And it's far more closely related to the homunculus than you might guess. At least it is in terms of mythical ick factor. And in cruelty to animals. And also tangentially in relation to cows. Except this tiny person is actually real. Sort of. Honestly, we were just going to mention it as a throwaway thing in last week's episode because there are so many coincidental similarities to the homunculus. But when we started reading about it, our research started to grow and spread and flower until it became worthy of an episode all its own. So let's start with Harry Potter. Do you remember the scene in the second movie or book, The Chamber of Secrets, where the kids have gathered for the weekly wizardly equivalent of home economics class, Herbology? And they're tasked with repotting some plants. Donning earmuffs, they uproot the plants and... There's a screaming, shriveled, brown, baby-like thing? That was kind of weird, right? But it was also totally steeped in reality. Sort of. The plants were real plants, and the screaming was totally based on medieval witchcraft and garden security. The plant, if you recall Hermione Granger's pompous explanation, was mandrake, or mandragora. Specifically, it's a plant called Mandragora officianarum, also known as mandrake, autumn mandrake, and Mediterranean mandrake. Well, if you want to get very technical, all of those various types of mandrake were gathered together under one official classification, along with a bunch of other cousin plants, hence the officianarium designation. The name Mandragora appears to come from an ancient Greek word that means harmful to cows. Although there's a mistaken belief that the name actually comes from man and dragon. That'll make more sense in a minute, but it's also untrue. It's just one of those fun linguistic coincidences. A mandrake is a flowering herb with purple bell-shaped flowers and yellow berries, but that's not what makes the plant special. What makes it special is its root system. A mandrake has a thick vertical root that generally forks at the end, and it usually has smaller roots forking off the main root. The upshot of that is, if you squint, it sort of looks like a person, in that it has two legs and sometimes two arms coming off a pulpy root body. That's what some folks think the man part of the name refers to. The drake part, the dragon part, refers to the fact that the root is very magical. Well, according to legend. See, mandrake is another one of those natural substances, like willow bark, which we discussed in an episode bearing that name. Mandrake is another of those substances that people have been using forever for various medicinal purposes, both real and imagined. One of the oldest mentions of mandrake is in the Bible. And without it, the careers of two of the greatest musicians of stage and screen might never have gotten started. Now, 
The trouble with relating any story from the Old Testament of the Bible is deciding where to start. And that's where this story starts, in the Old Testament. Or really, in the Torah, the Hebrew Scripture, which is contained within the Old Testament. And this particular story is part of the book of Genesis. To most people, the book of Genesis, whose name comes from the Greek word for origin, is the story of the creation of the cosmos, the fall of Adam and Eve from grace, Noah's Ark, and so on. And it is, that's the first part, the part that deals with the primeval history of the cosmos. But the rest of the book of Genesis actually recounts the origins of the Hebrew people, and how they became the Israelites, the chosen people of God, and how they ended up enslaved in Egypt. The Mandrake comes pretty close to the end of that story. Basically, there was this guy named Jacob. Eventually, his name would get changed to Israel, and he was pretty prolific, which is how he ended up being the ancestor of the entire tribe of Israel. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. Now, Jacob is a pretty important figure, and there's a lot of stories about him, but we're coming in pretty close to the end of it. Jacob had almost a dozen kids by Leah, but Rachel was barren, and she desperately wanted to have a child. One day, Jacob and Leah's son, Reuben, discovered this weird plant while harvesting wheat, mandrake. Now, mandrake supposedly had magical powers to aid in conception. So Rachel ate the berries of the plant, and soon thereafter, she bears Jacob a son, Joseph. And then, some time later, she dies. Now, Jacob was pretty broken up about Rachel's death, but this isn't one of those stories where he blames the kid Joseph for the mother's death. Nope. He treasured Joseph. And Joseph was a kind, well-mannered, all-around good egg. Joseph's half-brothers weren't bad guys either, per se, but they weren't the nicest. They were a bit selfish and a bit jealous. So Jacob liked Joseph that much more, which made his half-brothers even more jealous. When Jacob favored Joseph with a finely made cloak of many brightly colored threads, that was the second to last straw for Joseph's brothers. The last straw came when Joseph woke up one day and said to his 11 brothers, Hey guys, I had this weird dream that we were all farming out in the field and all your crops bowed down to my crops like my crops were kings and your crops were lowly servants. And wouldn't it be funny if that meant something like you were someday going to kneel to me in supplication. Anyway, let's get to work. <laughs> One thing led to another and the brothers tried to kill Joseph, but ended up selling him to a slaver instead. The brothers figured that would be a great plan because then they could make a little profit and still be rid of their brother and there was no way it would all come back to haunt them years later when a famine forced them to travel from Canaan to Egypt begging for food where they discovered Joseph was a prophet working for the Pharaoh and they would have to beg Joseph for forgiveness. Which would also lead to enslavement for all of their families. Now if this sounds like something you've heard before, perhaps in the form of a 1970s rock opera. That's because it's the plot to Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's collaborative stage production, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And it represents the big break for the musical duo. See, the two met in their late teenage years in 1966, and they decided they could do great things together with Lloyd Webber on music and Rice on lyrics. And so they created their first musical, The Likes of Us. They produced a demo tape, 
shopped it around, and utterly failed to get anyone to even listen. And that would have been the end of them if a family friend of Lloyd Webber, who happened to be a music teacher at a religious school in London, hadn't commissioned Andy and Tim to write something biblical for his choir to sing. But he also wanted something poppy and upbeat and fun. The pair leapt into the project and adapted the story of Joseph and his mini-colored coat into a half-hour cantata that mixed several contemporary musical styles and a bit of family-friendly humor. Because that was what the story of a bunch of jealous brothers selling their sibling into slavery needed. It worked. The first performance was a hit. And by luck, one of the audience members was a music critic whose child was in the choir. So it got a great write-up. It was performed a few more times and expanded a bit. And here's the weird bit. Chronologically, in America, Rice and Lloyd Webber's first stage production was a rock opera along the same theme as Joseph, Jesus Christ Superstar, in 1969. And they used the success of that production to market a stage adaptation of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat in 1970. But Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was their first real success. It led to Jesus Christ Superstar, not the other way around. And without that success, there would have been no Evita, no Cats, no Phantom of the Opera. And Disney would have had to find another lyricist for The Lion King, Aladdin, and Beauty and the Beast. And the James Bond film Octopussy wouldn't have had a theme song. Well, it would probably have had a theme song but not all-time high with lyrics by Tim Rice. But we digress. The point is that various ancient peoples attributed a number of medicinal properties to the mandrake, both the berries and the root. The berries were used by various people, including the Greeks and Persians, to dull pain during ancient surgical procedures. And that wasn't just a bunch of mystical mumbo-jumbo. Because mandrake is actually narcotic, See, mandrake is part of a family of plants known as the Solanaceae, or nightshade family, whose name bears a resemblance to the Latin word for the rays of the sun, and to the Latin word for calming and soothing. And since the flowers of many nightshade plants have radiating color patterns like the sun's rays or like halos of light, either explanation makes sense. Now, the nightshade family has a lot of members, including the mandrake, but also including tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, and peppers. Like Jacob's, it's a big family. And like Jacob's family, it has its good eggs and its bad eggs. Very bad eggs. See, many members of the nightshade family produce a class of natural chemicals called alkaloids. And most of the nightshade alkaloids are pretty potent. Some are medicinal, some are narcotic, like those in the mandragora berries, some are hallucinogenic, and some are outright toxic. The most famous nightshade, of course, is the deadly nightshade, Atropa belladonna. The Atropa part derives from the Greek goddess Atropos. She was one of the three fates whose many tasks in the cosmos included the measuring, weaving, and the cutting off of the thread of fate that represented every human life. Atropos's job was to actually cut the thread. Thus, her name meant unstoppable or inevitable. Belladonna means beautiful lady in Latin, and that refers to the plant's cosmetic uses. Because using the deadliest substances in existence for cosmetic purposes isn't a modern thing that started with the deadly botulinum toxin, or Botox, to decrease wrinkles. It's something people have been doing forever. 
Belladonna's claim to fame, the reason it's called Deadly Nightshade, is that the alkaloids it produces, called tropane alkaloids, make it one of the most toxic plants in the world. It's so deadly that even honey produced from its nectar can be harmful. Now, mandrake isn't quite on par with deadly nightshade, but it's not the healthiest stuff around. In fact, it's pretty poisonous. In small amounts, the narcotic alkaloids in the root can cause unconsciousness, which is why it was useful for ancient surgeons. And it does have pain-killing properties which made it a useful treatment for joint pain back in the ancient days. But more than a little of the stuff will cause hallucinations, hyperactivity, and a bad case of the incurable crazies. Beyond that, it'll also cause gastrointestinal problems and make your heart race, along with a host of other problems. Essentially, mandrake is just a poisonous herb with a funny-looking root whose properties made it medically useful in small enough doses to ancient people who didn't know better. So what's up with the screaming babies? And how does this tie back into the homunculus? Well, something very strange happened to the mandrake over the course of human history. In ancient times, it was a medicine, right? And it gradually built up a small laundry list of useful properties, like aiding in conception as detailed in the Bible, and as an aphrodisiac. And, because of the funny root that sort of looked like a person, it was also used as a charm that represented people. The story went that because it resembled a tiny version of you, it could be used to draw toxins and curses and chronic illnesses out of you and into the root. Combine the person shape and the aphrodisiac properties, and you get love charms. Add hallucinations, and you get a host of other magical properties. For example, mandrakes were thought to help a person detect treasures buried underground. And then, the mandrake turned evil. Seriously evil. All of a sudden, in the middle to late medieval period, a host of other stories started circulating about the mandrake. The twisted resemblance to a tiny person led to a bit of gruesome Germanic folklore. They called the plant the Little Gallows Man. It was said that when certain criminals, thieves, and murderers were hanged, their blood or body fluids or urine or fat would seep down into the earth, and from that unwholesome seed, a mandrake would sprout and the mandrake was basically horrible, concentrated evil in plant form. If you dug up a mandrake, you'd be consigned to hell. And not only would the plant jam you to hell, it would also send you there immediately. Because when you pulled the root out of the earth, the tormented spirit of the little gallows man would issue a scream so horrible it would kill you on the spot. And that was a problem, because the mandrake still had all those great magical properties, and a few more, like multiplying coins. Eventually, would-be healers and treasure hunters and paramours eager to cure their ills, get rich, or bewitch lovers, they figured out how to unearth the things safely. First, you plugged your ears with wax. Now that wouldn't keep you from hearing the scream unless you were far away. The scream was that powerful. So to pull the mandrake out from a safe distance, you ran a rope from the mandrake's stem to the neck or tail of a hungry dog. And once you had plugged your ears, tethered your dog to the mandrake, and retreated to a safe distance, 
you offered the dog some food. It would run for the food, pop the mandrake root out of the ground, and drop dead from the screaming. But you'd be safe, and around the 1400s and 1500s, that was pretty much the accepted way to get yourself a mandrake. See, we promised you gruesome ickiness and cruelty to animals. This would have fit right in alongside the homunculus, right? Now here's the weird thing. No one is quite sure where that legend about screaming mandrakes actually came from. But some historians have a theory. See, mandrakes were really sought after, especially by poor peasants who wanted to strike it rich. If you were a local herbalist or self-professed witch or wizard and you had mandrakes growing in your garden, you had to worry about greedy locals digging up your magical roots. So the theory goes that the medieval witches and herbalists planted the seeds of the mandrake myth on purpose. They spread around the stories of how deadly the plants were as a way to secure their gardens. Until someone figured out that wax and dog thing. But we have to assume that was a noisy process that would wake up Striganona. And she'd chase off the greedy peasant with a broom and then curse his sheep and then go back to cooking spaghetti in her magic pot. Or whatever. Now we have to admit that this is just an obscure theory that we turned up. And it's not a widely accepted explanation or anything. So consider this a legal disclaimer that this is basically just a fun little possible theory. Not anything definitive. But before we close out this story, we need to mention something else for which the mandrake planted seeds. Beyond legends of screaming baby plant monsters and beyond the nation of Israel, magical mandrakes also planted the seeds for costumed crime fighters in comics. Or rather, a magician named Mandrake. Mandrake the Magician. The world's first comic superhero. The story starts with Leon Harrison Gross, who was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1911. He took the name Lee Falk after his father died, and his mother married a man named Albert Falk Epstein. You might have heard of him as the creator of the comic superhero the Phantom. But before he created the Phantom, he was just an artistic young Jewish man from Missouri who was fascinated with stage magicians. Particularly one stage magician named Leon Giglio, who was renowned for his top hat, thin mustache, and red-lined cape. Yes, he was basically the consummate stage magician. In 1934, Lee Falk traveled to New York City to pitch his idea for a weekly newspaper comic about a globe-trotting stage magician who travels the world and uses his skills at illusion and deception to fight crime. Mandrake the Magician also had a partner from the continent of Africa, an African prince named Lothar. Among his many foes, Mandrake often thwarted the villainous Cobra. The folks at King Features liked the ideas, and the drawings of the top-hatted, scarlet-caped, mustachioed magician. But they were dubious of Falk's qualifications to write globetrotting adventures. Consequently, Falk spun tales of his own globetrotting adventures in his studies of various mystical practices in the Orient, all of which were lies. In truth, Falk had never left Missouri until the very trip he was on to New York City. But it worked and Mandrake the Magician started appearing in newspapers across the country. Once the character became popular, 
Giglio was quick to capitalize on the fictional character that looked like his stage persona. He changed his name to Leon Mandrake. And Falk, for his part, neither confirmed nor denied that Giglio had inspired Mandrake. Meanwhile, Falk continued writing and drawing Mandrake into the 50s, before passing the duties on to Phil Davis. Falk returned in 1964 to writing for the character, while cartoonist Fred Fredericks did the art. In 1999, Falk passed away, still the main writer for the character, and Fred Fredericks kept the strip in comic books going until 2013. So it was a pretty long-running strip in comic book. But that was just the beginning. The stories of the dapper, depression-era caped conjurer really caught on. Numerous toys and books were produced featuring the character throughout the 1930s and beyond. From 1940 to 1942, there was a radio drama, and later, Columbia Pictures produced a 12-part serial about Mandrake the Magician. A short comic book miniseries featuring the character ran in 2015, and there's talk of an upcoming motion picture adaptation of Mandrake the Magician. As for Falk, well, thanks to the success of Mandrake the Magician and the Phantom, he was able to finally travel the world as he had once claimed. His biography, he said, perhaps flippantly, that he did so primarily to assuage his guilt over his lies. You never can be quite sure what will sprout from the seeds you plant, either in the ground or in the minds of others. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.